Well, once again, welcome. Uh, good to have you with us uh, this morning. Um, lots of good things going on at First Press, especially the congregational meeting we're going to be having right after this service. I uh, hope you can stay for that. Um, if not, you might want to exit either during the closing hymn or at the very end of the service, right during the final announcements. Today we continue in this sermon series entitled Thresholds. And as you can see, we have that symbol of the London Underground. And if you've been to the London Underground, also known as the Tube, then you will recall that as you step into one of the trains, you hear this disembodied voice saying, mind the gap. There's a gap and you don't want to step into it, you want to step over it. It's a threshold. And what we're doing in this sermon series is looking at thresholds on the road to faith. And uh, we are being inspired by a particular book. It's a book by Evertson Shop. It's called I Once Was Lost. And they have looked at data from more than 2,200 college conversions from the late 1990s into the early 2000s. And they have determined that there are five typical thresholds that people cross on their road to belief or faith in Jesus. And these are the ones. They move, number one, from distrust to trust. From two, number two, from complacent to curious. That's our focus today. Three, from being closed to change to being open to change. Four, from meandering to seeking. And five, to crossing over the threshold into the kingdom of God. Now here's a thought. I think that we not only cross these thresholds on the way to faith initially, but I think we continue to cross them as we're walking in faith. And that's something that we'll want to think more about today. So let me invite you to our text. We're going to look at John chapter 5. I want you to look for two different kinds of complacent people as I read it. Two different kinds of complacent people. John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's 2,500 feet above sea level. Went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And the footnote also reads Bethzatha. So we're not exactly sure which it's called, but Bethesda is a good thought because that means house of mercy. Continuing on, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Some translations say porches. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, you may notice at this point, especially if your eyes are sharp, uh, although, yes, there is no verse 4. You're not going to see a verse 4 here. What you will see is it's in the footnotes. It, it'll say something like some manuscripts have this verse but they're not the best and oldest ones. But here's the verse because it's an important idea to conclude. Verse 4 can read in the footnote. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. There's an ancient tradition that the pools of Bethesda were healing waters. And we know from archaeology that there were pagan temples built at this very same site. Pagans believed that healing was present in those waters as well. So we can't exactly explain it, but that's something to include. Let me show you a picture of what, if you went to the pools of Bethesda now, you would see. These are sort of uh, the remains of churches from various eras that were built over this site to commemorate it. Here's an old model of the Temple Mount in the Temple precincts, right outside the temple, actually. And you can see 
the Pool of Bethesda would have been running into that upper uh, tiered square building and, and a bigger view you can see the uh, columns, the colonnades around the perimeter of that. Here's an artist's rendition of our scene today. There Jesus sits by the water with the paralyzed man. Just wanted you to be able to envision it. Let's go on now with verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, likely paraplegic. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, just as you stir waters in this scene by your mercy and grace, stir in our hearts, we pray, and draw us closer to yourself. In your name we pray. Amen. I've shared from this pulpit before that I was really not raised in a church-going home. Uh, we went to church maybe Christmas, maybe Easter once in a while. My dad, it's true, did lead my sister and me in Bible study uh, a little bit when we were growing up, but for the most part, God was something real, someone I could push off, and uh, it, things seemed fine to me. However, when I went to high school, I saw self-professing Christians, and I formed some opinions about them. Based on what I saw from my classmates who called themselves Christian, I determined that if you weren't a good student, if you weren't athletic, and if you weren't very social, well, you could always be a Christian. <laughs> That's what I thought. And so I put them in these boxes. Things were neat, orderly, and I was complacent. I was complacent. Complacency has been defined in the dictionary with these words. It's a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. As I thought about it, complacency has a couple features. One could be called bland positivity. It's that sort of feeling where I'm okay, you're okay, it's all good, right? Bland positivity. Or perhaps there's a certain element of resigned acceptance where we throw up our hands, shrug our shoulders, and say, well, I guess this is as good as it gets. It's complacency. 
And there are two groups of complacent people in our passage. Did you see them? The first is the paralyzed man. The paralyzed man, Jesus asks him a question, do you want to be made well? It's as though perhaps he no longer desires these things. Perhaps he's resigned to his fate. William Barclay, in his commentary on our passage, says this, It might well have been that hope had died and left behind a passive and dull despair. In his heart of hearts, the man might be well content to remain an invalid. If in our inmost hearts we are well content to stay as we are, there can be no change for us. Jesus later refers to the man's sin, and it's potentially problematic. Why why does Jesus say this? Well, it could be that there's an underlying sin in his life that Jesus wants to dig deeper with, wants to stir, wants to release him from. And Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on our text, says that perhaps this man's sin was blame. He blamed others. He didn't take responsibility for anything in his life. He blamed the people who got ahead of him. He blamed the fact that no one would help him. He blamed Jesus for healing him. He had what Bruner called, perhaps, victimitis. But whatever the case, Jesus not only wants to heal him physically, he wants to heal him spiritually and emotionally, psychologically. And so Jesus says, stop sinning. Take take the wholeness of what I'm offering to you. Let it penetrate your whole being, not just the outside, not just your physical health. The man was paralyzed. He was paralyzed physically and emotionally and spiritually. That's one uh, complacent group. The other complacent group, did you know which, did you note it? It's the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders, they are complacent. You know, uh, if you look in a thesaurus and look up a synonym for complacent, it will tell you it's self-righteous. Self-righteous. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were self-righteous. They had crafted their very careful way of understanding God and what God wanted for them. And they had listened to the teachings of the rabbis. And we now know, because we have a document called the Mishnah, that the rabbis in Jesus' day were saying there were 39 prohibited types of work on the Sabbath. You couldn't do these. 39 different ones. And one of them was that a tailor couldn't even carry his needle on the Sabbath. That was carrying something. That people with artificial teeth couldn't wear them on the Sabbath because that was carrying something. The people with artificial wooden legs couldn't wear them on the Sabbath because that was carrying something. Do you see what they were doing? They were trying to manage and control God and the people to try to ensure a particular outcome. Their religion was a comfort, a comforter, a kind of reassurance to them, a way to protect them against the messiness of life. And it would be very easy for us as Christians to to make these into villains, but we mustn't do that. We must instead think a little bit why they might have been that way. You know, when you reach midlife, as I have done, you begin to notice certain temptations and sins that you might not have noticed as a younger person. A certain cynicism can set in. A world weariness. A sort of been there, done that mentality. And religion for us in midlife and older adulthood can become this sort of comforter thing, this snuggly, this way of maintaining familiarity and comfort in our lives. Don't tamper with our religion, we say, because that's our comforter. And if you're like me, you might struggle with what I've come to call the four C's. I've shared this before, the four C's. 
These become almost obsessions for us. We want our control. We want our comfort. We want our cleanliness. And we want our convenience. I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with this, am I? These characterize us as Americans and as American Christians as well, I think. And if we follow these unquestioningly, we become locked in a a prison cell of the four C's. And our religion can become an enablement of that. But in our complacency, seeker and religious person alike, Jesus is stirring. Jesus is stirring. There's an inner restlessness in us, is there not? We think in ourselves, whether we're seeking God for the first time or even if we've been following God for a while, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's a stirring within us. When I left home to go to college, smug, complacent, I went to Cal Berkeley and everything was in order and lined up or so I thought, but something began to shift in me my freshman year. I began to be negative. I began to be cynical. I felt empty inside. Life felt kind of purposeless. But I pledged a fraternity, and I was really drawn to this one particular fraternity brother. He was the funniest guy in the fraternity. He was the smartest guy in the fraternity. He was incredibly charismatic and winsome, and I watched him become a Christian. And I thought to myself, wow, that blows my mind. All my categories have shifted here. There's got to be more to this Christianity thing. God was stirring in me. My heart was restless that year. St. Augustine, the church father from the mid-fourth century A.D., had this famous quote. It's a prayer. He says to God, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do you ever feel that way? Our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. As God stirs in us, there may be things that we can do that are helpful to others as they seek faith. There are are potentially things we can do. And the book that I mentioned earlier lists three. Number one is this. Ask good questions. Ask good questions of those who are seeking faith. So often we want to tell them certain things. This book reminds us to ask good questions about them and their lives and what's important to them. That book says that Jesus asked questions. That book points out at one point, Jesus is asked 183 questions in the Gospels. He answers just three of them. And he asks 307 questions back. Let us be people who ask questions of others. And then let us do a second thing. Let us listen well. You know, people in the world need others to listen to them. We are so interested in telling others things about ourselves and what we believe, but we need to become good listeners. Ask good questions and listen well. There's a character in E.M. Foster's novel, A Passage to India. Her name is Mrs. Moore. And at one point, Foster uses her to critique Christianity. She has this phrase I've never forgotten. She refers to our faith as poor, talkative, little Christianity. Let us not be that way. Let us ask questions before we speak. That's the first thing. The second thing the book points out we can do to be helpful to others is tell parables. Tell stories about our own lives, 
about things we see happening around us that are instructive for faith. Tell parables. Jesus did this. We need to do this as well. So often we think it's got to be a linear, rational argument. But most people are not argued into the faith. We need to tell stories. Ask questions, tell parables, and finally live curiously. As we seek to follow Jesus Christ, our lives will be shaped and changed, and we will do certain things. Feed the homeless. Reach out to children and mentor them at an elementary school. Do other things that are curious to those around us. And as we do this, people begin to take note. So three things. Ask good questions, tell parables, and live curiously. Above all, to cross this threshold from complacent to curious, we need to look to Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on him because he's the one who stirs in us all, stirs in us, and we need to keep our focus on him. Everts and Schaup in their book say this, the best thing we can do for our friends at this place in their journey is point them to Jesus and his kingdom. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery that Jesus would draw any of us into faith. A mystery. Jesus, after all, said this later in the gospel, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. It's a mystery. Jesus later said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Keep the focus on him. He's the one stirring. He's the one who can change our lives. Friends, where are you on this continuum from complacent to curious? You may be seeking faith for the first time. Where are you on this continuum? And if you've been a Christian or a churchgoer for a long time, where is Jesus stirring? Where is he awakening in you an awareness of complacency and drawing you deeper into him? I hope that you can think about that this week. But remember, it's all a wonderful mystery. Rupali has a story to share. It's about her dad, and I've alluded to this before, but I wanted you to hear it from her. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, when my sister Mitali introduced me to Jesus 32 years ago, I put my life in Jesus' hands. The burden of my parents' salvation was immense and heavy. Together with Carl, and our sons, Jason and Jordan, my sister, Mitalia, and I labored on, honoring and loving mom and dad as best as we could. We shared the prayer requests for their salvation time and time again with many of you who interceded for our family. Time passed, and dad didn't seem to change. He was a good man, loving, honest, dutiful, generous, warm, and kind. But after decades of worshiping Hindu gods and goddesses and following a guru whose garlanded picture resided in a place of prominence, no matter where we were living, could he ever bow the knee to Jesus, who was perceived as that Western God? Dad got older, his body became frail, and our prayers intensified. At age 87, he took a bad fall, triggered by a small stroke, and lost mobility, along with a fair amount of cognition. They enrolled him in hospice, and we assumed his time on earth was running out. 
Come on, Jesus, we prayed in desperation. I could hear Jesus saying, I've got this, dearest. And did he ever. Caring for dad became too much for mom to handle on her own. We needed a caregiver. One after another, my parents fired people sent by the company we hired. They just weren't a cultural fit for a traditional Bengali household. But one morning, mom called. They're sending a Bengali-speaking girl today, she informed me. I was stunned. Our mad Googling skills and extensive contacts had unearthed no caregivers who spoke Bengali. And now one was showing up to the house? But of course, Jesus had to add his signature. Because after Rupa's first day, mom called to tell me some good news. The caregiver was a Christian. It was a good thing I was sitting down because I almost fell off my chair. The odds of finding a Bengali-speaking caregiver were virtually nil. The odds of a Christian Bengali-speaking caregiver was statistically impossible because almost all the Bengalis in America are either Muslims or Hindus. I've got the sweetheart, Jesus repeated. One afternoon a year ago, Dad called me and said, I had the most amazing dream last night. I was so scared about dying and about death, Dad said, that I finally, after I finally fell asleep, I had this dream. Lord came to me and said, don't be frightened. Everything your daughter has told you is true. The only word he spoke in English was Lord. Wow, Dad, I said, how did you feel after you woke up? Not scared at all, he said. I've got this, Jesus was singing. Last May, I received a call from my sister to say that dad was having a heart attack. It was time for me to get to the airport. I got to DIA to find that my flight was delayed. I was desperate to get there to see my dad before he died. As I sat at my gate, reading through familiar passages of comfort from the Bible, a wonderful Southwest gate attendant came and sat next to me and asked if he could pray for me. I merely told him that dad was not well. He laid his hand on my shoulder and prayed that my father would say yes to Jesus and trust him with his life. He handed me an early boarding pass and exhorted me to trust God. I've got this dear heart. As I arrived at my parents' home late that evening, dad was unconscious. I held his hand and kissed his forehead just like he had done for me so many times. The next morning, I woke up early and went to Dad's bed. His eyes were open and he was alert. I heard him tell me how much he loved me. His mind was clear as a cloudless sky. What was even more amazing was that he could hear us without us having to shout. His hearing had been deteriorating for months. My sister Mitali arrived with her husband, Rob, along with the caregiver, Rupa. We were around his hospital bed singing a Bengali folk hymn that he loved about walking in the fields with Jesus. Dad tried to sing along, his hands making the beat on the blanket. Baba, do you believe Jishu is your Lord and Savior and died for your sins? 
Do you believe he was resurrected from the dead? Yes, Dad said clearly. We remind him of the marvelous dream he'd had about Jishu. Do you put your faith in Jishu for salvation and eternal life? We asked, yes, Dad said clearly. We prayed, and the presence of the Spirit was palpable. Birdsong joined our praise from outside the open window. Dad's face was joyous and peaceful. He lost consciousness soon after that, and he went home two days later. Thanks to my loving, powerful God, I know without a shadow of doubt that Dad is safely with Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite our friend Keith and, uh, what, 15 years missions pastor here? 15, 18 to lead us in prayer. Thank you. Thank you, Rapali. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking how much you miss the fact that when I step to this microphone, you just never know what's going to come flying out of my mouth. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you have us. That is Rapali's testimony. And because you have us, you've got this. Whatever this is in our life, we come this morning as grateful people. We're well enough to be in church. We come to be nurtured. We thank you for the stirring word of God that Carl preached this morning and for fellowship and for singing and for seeking your face. We invite you into our hearts and lives, into those places um, where we are thankful and happy and into those places where we're in despair where we're sad, where we just can't get over an injury or a challenge in our life. We, we thank you that it isn't just um, when we're ecstatic that you're, up, you're present, but maybe especially when we're on the side of the pool and we can't get in the water. So we call upon your name in Jesus' name for the power of your spirit to fall upon us. We confess that in all kinds of ways, and we fail you, we confess our sins before you. You know what they are better than we do, and as we take time and we sit before you, they bubble to the surface, all of those things that come to our mind. The things we're ashamed of, the things we'd like to have a do-over on, we confess to you. <clears throat> and we know that you never leave us stuck, you never leave us in our sin, but you forgive us and move us forward in faith. You shake us out of our complacency. We intercede for our world, and it isn't hard to look for places to focus that with wars, with bombs falling, with people in despair, and people moving around as refugees, and people frustrated uh, all over the world with leaders, with their circumstances. Um, we ask that wherever your people are, you'll pour out your spirit that as the wars rage and as the world is in turmoil, uh, the mustard seed of the kingdom will grow. And we commit ourselves to that. As subtle and understated as it might be in our lives, we're committed to showing forth your glory. 
We give you all of those things there isn't time to pray about or that are simply too tender to pray about. We give those into your hands as well. And as your people, we pray the prayer together that the Lord Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. 